0: Chapter 14, we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew. A few weeks ago, I talked about the parable of the seed and the sower. And, and even if you weren't here, you might be familiar with that. It's a parable, a story that Jesus told to teach a truth about the human heart. And when he, when he taught that parable, he had four kinds of soils that represented four kinds of conditions of the human heart or the human soul. The first was this packed down soil that was hardened. It represented a hard heart. And so the the seed of the word or the gospel was shared by Jesus. And then it was snatched up. And Jesus said that's like Satan coming around and snatching it up. So it it never never took root. There was nothing ever sprung up. The second was rocky ground that had um, like a level of dirt over the rocks enough so that the, the plant could sprout up, but because there was a bedrock underneath the dirt, it only went for a moment, and then it died and faded out. And, and that's the heart with no root, that you, you've come to Christian things, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but your heart's still really hard. And so at times it seems like life is happening, spiritual life, but then it just shrivels up. The third was the weed-infested heart that thorns and thistles come up. So something sprouts, but then other things wrap around it. And Jesus equated that to the the cares of the world and the the persecution for the faith and the love of money. And those weeds and thorns kind of choke out the Word of God. And then the last soil was this rich, deep, dark soil that I equated to a garden on the Hoodlebug Trail, which apparently many people in this church knew exactly what I was talking about, that life just springs up and it continues to grow. And that's what we want to be. That's the soil we want to find ourselves in. I share all of that because today's passage, is go- you're going to see all four soils represented in this passage. And the question is, couple questions. One is, which one are you in the accounts that we're going to look at today, and how will you respond? Where do you see yourself in these accounts, if you're brutally honest, and how will you respond? We're going to look at two scenes in the book of Matthew that often I don't think even if you grew up in church or you come to church regularly, you probably don't connect in your mind. But we're going to see Matthew actually connects them. The two scenes are the description of the death of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000. You didn't really connect those in your mind. I didn't really connect those in my mind either until I was studying. So I'm going to look at we I'm going to read the whole section of verses 1 through 21 and then we're going to walk back through it. But as I read, I want you to honestly ask yourself where do you see yourself and how will you respond? Because what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see Jesus' power and we're going to see his compassion. So look with me at Matthew 14 and we're going to read from verse 1 through 21. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now he's going to give us the backstory. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, That's John the Baptist. It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now here's the connector. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from their towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 bas- baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So the question is where are you in the crowd? Where are you in these accounts? And how will you respond? Because we're going to see very clearly that in both of these accounts, we see Jesus' power, and we see his incredible compassion. And we're going to look at two points. The first point is this. Disciples of Jesus are called to respond with courage and boldness. Disciples of Jesus are called to respond with courage and boldness. See, when Matthew wrote this, He was writing to encourage Christians. He was writing to strengthen their faith. He was writing to to encourage them to be bold and courageous for Jesus and to be expectant and to be confident in faith. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch literally means divided by four. So Herod the Tetrarch was one of four sons of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was the evil man who had the Israelite boys executed from ages zero to two in the Christmas account. These are his sons, and they, they, his kingdom was divided up, and Herod, the Herod in this account, is Herod Antipas, is one of four. And so he was in charge of a region. Verse two, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, Herod heard about Jesus. And he's in charge of uh, basically the jurisdiction that Jesus is, is doing many, many things. And the words, probably more than on one occasion, probably on many occasions, people keep coming to him and say, Did you hear, did you hear what Jesus did this week? Did you hear how he healed the blind man? Did you hear how he actually raised a dead man? And, and the word is traveling and spreading. The news is out. And remember, Herod is a, a king. And in, maybe in our context uh, through history, it's kind of like a minor king, but the Bible refers to him as a king. And so he was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And there's someone in his kingdom doing these mighty things. Now he is superstitious and he's fearful and he he's already has executed John the Baptist. Now what we're going to see in verses three and following the backstory of how that happened, but it actually already happened. And so he's wondering, is this John the Baptist raised back from the dead? The man I had not only killed, but I had his head lopped off um so that would be scary if you were herod what is interesting is that herod is a a very interesting guy see herod has a problem um he he was intrigued by john the baptist he is intrigued by jesus he actually in this account doesn't even deny the fact that jesus is doing real miracles but he, his life is conflicted. He, he left his wife for a relative to marry her, and she, she turns out not to be a very nice lady. She's the one who's going to come up with the idea, let's chop off John the Baptist's head. Both of them um, committed adultery, and both of them um, are related to one another. So they, they kind of did a double whammy on breaking the Old Testament law. They committed adultery and they decided to marry each other, which they are relatives to one another, which the book of Leviticus uh, forbade. And John the Baptist, being the bold man that he was before he died, he called them to account. See, John the Baptist was full of courage and boldness for Jesus. If you remember throughout the, the, the gospel account that refers to John, at his baptism, he, he said this about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had great faith in Jesus. And then at one moment, he, he, as, as Jesus' ministry is growing, he said this, that I must become lesser and he must become greater. And so he was faithful To the very end. So, even at the outset, who are you more like? Are you more like John the Baptist, bold and courageous for Jesus? Or more like Herod or Herodias, who we're going to see in a moment, who are all conflicted. And though Jesus did real miracles, and they're not denying that, their sinful passions and desires ruled over them. So, their decisions and their actions and their choices were ruled by what was inside of them and what they wanted and what they craved, not being bold in faith for Jesus or responding in repentance to John the Baptist, really the last prophet of the Old Testament line. Are you conflicted about Jesus? Are you like that? Are you straddling the fence of, I I think this might be real? I think the Christians that I'm meeting are real and their faith is real and they've actually been changed and they're different because they met Jesus. But are you thinking, if I I do that, I have to give up this. (laughs) Giving up this, whatever this is, will always be worth it to follow Jesus. So Jesus is powerful, He's fully God, He's fully man. And we're going to see that. But now what's going to happen is Matthew wants us to know the backstory of what happened here, because it, it teaches us some things. So look at verses three and four. It's going to give us the backstory. For Herod had seized John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Not only was he a relative. Brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. See, John was bold and courageous. And at times, the Lord's going to call you to be bold and courageous. And in those moments, where, where will your allegiance lie? Will it be with Jesus? Or will it be with having others like you and accept you? We all will have those opportunities as followers of Christ many, many, many times in our life. And when that happens, may we be bold and courageous like John the Baptist. Look at verse 5. This is about Herod. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod feared the people because they held John the Baptist to be a prophet. And they were right. And we're going to see that the fear of man, the craving of people's approval, the wanting to be liked by Herod, gets him into trouble numerous times. And initially, he wouldn't do anything because he wouldn't do any harm to John because he feared the people. He feared the crowd. And remember, the crowd is under his government, under his rule. So these are his people, his citizens. They had a restraining effect on him to a degree until the infamous birthday party. So verses six and following, this is a, just imagine a simple gathering of men and women to do simple things. Doesn't give us a lot of details, but it gives us enough details to know there's nothing good happening at this birthday party. Look at verse six. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So the implications, if you study this at all, it's every commentary or commentator would, would agree, at least the ones I read, that this is an impure, immoral, lewd, party-scene situation happening. And Herod says to Rhodes' daughter, "I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Well, her mom, who was also on the receiving end of John the Baptist's courageous call to not do sinful things, comes up with the scheme, like, I had enough of this prophet telling me what I'm doing is wrong. Maybe you feel that way, that you don't even like to be around Christians at times because you're conflicted. I remember before I met Jesus, I knew a few Christians at IUP, and I remember one Thanksgiving, um, I don't know if IUP still does this, but they had a nice Thanksgiving spread, and myself and a couple friends indulged in some substances before we went to the cafeteria, and I remember I saw a Christian that I knew, and I felt guilty immediately. They didn't say anything. I actually dodged them, but I saw them. And on a grander scale, this is what Herodias and Herod are feeling. They feel guilt. But they have a choice to respond towards the Lord or away from the Lord. And they responded away from the Lord. This woman's not a nice woman. So this is what she came up with. Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, that's Herodias, the daughter said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. That's pretty evil. Chop off his head. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. In other words, because of the fear of man again, because of people pleasing Now he's going to go the other way. Well, I need to save face. He's a politician. I need to save face. So I'm just going to chop off his head. So he actually felt a degree of guilt. He felt conflicted. There are many people that come very near to the kingdom of God that feel guilty. That feel a genuine remorse for their sins. That really think that the Lord is real. But then, kind of go back to their sinful desires and and pleasures. I remember before I met Jesus at the age of 19, there was about a six-month period of time where I wasn't a Christian, but I felt really guilty. And I came to a place where I believed that the Lord was real, and that I was sinful. But rather than turning to Jesus in faith and repentance, I just kept living in that terrible place. And maybe that's where you are today. You don't have to stay there. You shouldn't stay there. The Lord doesn't want you to stay there. Respond to Jesus' compassion and power. So where are you in this account? Are you like John the Baptist? Are you like Herod? Are you like Herodias? Look at verses 10 and 11. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. So the platter is just like a, a, like a board that you put like cheese and grapes on. Instead, it had John the Baptist's head on. And... Um, so he, he's, he's sinning all over the place. So he had these immoral sinful impulses that he gave into. And then he had these fear of man sinful impulses that he gave into these people-pleasing things. And so he's, he's a, a total wreck. And now he went through and actually executed the last of the Old Testament prophets. All because of passions and desires and people-pleasing. It's a dangerous place to be. And when he died, he had to meet the Lord face to face and come to terms with what he had done. And that's true of all of us. There will come a day where we die and we meet the Lord face to face. And I don't know about you, on that day, I would much rather be like John the Baptist. He's the very first Christian martyr. The very first one who died for Jesus, Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7, will be the second. But he was faithful to the end. He was courageous and he was bold. And obviously he had severe consequences for that boldness. But far better to be that and enter eternity than to be like Herod or Herodias or her daughter, or the crowd that was in the room, and by the sounds of it, there were many there that were just indulging in all kinds of sinful pleasures. See, heaven and hell are real. And when you die, you either, by faith in Jesus, are welcomed and ushered into God's presence, into heaven as a son or daughter, or you're an object of God's judgment and wrath and punishment. So the stakes are high, And Jesus is the answer. And he's calling us, he's calling you to trust him as both powerful and compassionate. Let's think about John the Baptist for a moment longer that he had great courage. His calling from birth was to be the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah to come, for Jesus. And he he did it. He went through on it. He was courageous, and he was bold. So the question is, what what are areas as Christians that the Lord's calling you to be bold and courageous? Is it in your workplace? Is it to speak up about Jesus and, and take a step, invite coworkers to a Bible study, to church? Maybe it's as simple as there's a, a Christmas song on the radio that clearly talks about Jesus, and you're at lunch and you, you just ask a question Do you know what that means? Do you know what that's talking about? Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe it's with your teachers. Maybe it's with your classmates. Maybe it's a professor. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a spouse. Ask the Lord to fill you with His Spirit and give you courage and make you bold for Him. See, that's how I want to live. That's, do we do that perfectly? No. But when we, when we mess up, Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive me and give me courage. Give me boldness. What helps me more than anything is, is just thinking of that final day, that day where I take my last breath. You and I all have that day. We don't know what that day is. So we want to live like that day could be today. We we will never regret. You will never regret being courageous and bold for the Lord. See, disciples respond to Jesus with courage and boldness. Not only that, but disciples, we're going to see in point two, disciples of Jesus are called to respond with faith and expectation. With a confidence in the Lord and who he is and an expectation. And we're going to see that in verses 13 and following. And this is the connector between the two scenes. Because you're, you might be thinking like me, like, wow, these things don't seem related. The kind of very detailed description of John being beheaded and something that's really common to Christians, the feeding of the 5,000. But here here you go in verse 13. Matthew wants us to connect the two. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When he heard this, what did he hear? He heard his cousin John had been beheaded by Herod. And we know from other places in the Bible, especially the death of Lazarus, Jesus felt deep grief. And so surely he felt grief about the loss of his cousin. But also, he knew that the, the storm clouds of his, his death were gathering as well. And so Herod, if he can execute John, he can certainly execute Jesus. And Jesus was never afraid of death, but Jesus would withdraw at times because his time had not yet come to die. And we don't know if that was the case here. Some speculate it was, some don't think it was. But if you follow Matthew, you know Jesus is aware that the day of his death, the day where he dies for the substitute of the sins of the world, is coming closer and closer. For whatever reason, whether it was grief, whether it was the, the shadow of Herod, Jesus decided to take his disciples. Let's go to a desolate place. Let's spend time with the Lord and with one another. The challenge was the crowds were growing because Jesus' reputation for doing all these miraculous things was growing. And for Jesus being this incredible teacher that sounded very different than the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes of his day. So in verse 13 it says, But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. So Jesus and his disciples went by boat and the crowds in faith with great expectation, went by foot. So they, they put in effort and energy, and that's men, women, and children. That's a large crowd of people. What's interesting, if you study the, what they think is the population of the towns of that day, the size of the crowd actually exceeds the population of the town. So people are starting to gather from all over, to see Jesus. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So let's just stop there a second. So Jesus' ministry is just cranking on all cylinders. People are most likely pushing and fighting to see him. Because if you think about it, there's no hospitals, there's no medicine, there's no go to the pharmacy and take this prescription. It's if you had a sick child or sick mom or dad or brother, you're going you're to carry them and you're going to go to Jesus. And so the crowds are growing and growing. And with that, Jesus fully man, fully human, fully God, there's exhaustion, there's people pressure. And so he's pulled away like, I just need a breather and now he sees this crowd. This is like a mass of people. It's at least 10 to 15,000 people because the 5,000 just counts the men. Then you have women and children. It's a large crowd. So imagine you're ready to rest. Oh, you've done your thing. You've healed some people. The disciples are probably feeling good about what's happening. And they look out like, oh my goodness. Here they come. So what is Jesus going to do? This is why you should love Jesus. And he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He sees the crowd and he immediately has compassion on them. His heart was moved towards them and he healed their sick. I mean, parents, think about this especially those of you who have young children right now. Your son or daughter is deathly ill. You hear that there's a man in Climber, Pennsylvania, that is healing people. And let's say you don't have a car. Well, you're going to pick up your two-year-old, your three-year-old, your four-year-old. You're going to put them on your shoulder, and you're just going to start walking. That's the scene. Maybe it's your blind brother. Maybe it's your deaf Friend. Maybe it's your paralyzed friend. And you start hearing the buzz that this man is real. And when you show up, he actually heals. Well, he sees the crowd, and he gets to work immediately. So you see his compassion, and you see his power. Now, parents, when you have sick children, they're not often or always just calm and compliant, right? They're crying, They're snotty. They're yelling. This really hurts. So picture a whole crowd of that. See, I think if we saw this on video, this would not be how we read it. It would be messy and smelly and loud, and Jesus looks out, and he sees us, and he has compassion on us. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Look, This should be up behind me. Matthew 9, this is another verse that basically underscores the same idea. Verse 36 of Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. When he saw the sinful crowds, those who maybe had all kinds of vile things going on in their lives, in their speech and action, and all the things that they've done. See, Jesus knows that because he's fully God. God. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, that's our king. That's who we want to be bold and courageous in speaking about. That's who we want to run to when we're hurting, when we're broken because of sin or because of suffering. Now remember, I think sometimes we forget, Matthew, who wrote Matthew, is Levi, the tax collector, in the bible so when he writes these things you could see him like smiling as he, oh, i gotta tell him this i definitely and it's through the inspiration of the spirit so the spirit's guiding but he knows firsthand what it's like to be on the receiving end of jesus's compassion and power see he was a, basically a a thief he was breaking the backs of the jewish people he was a fellow jew so they they would say he was a traitor he was selling out for rome he was Pocketing money. Then he encounters Jesus and he is just changed and transformed because Jesus set him free. So he wants us to know that. So the crowd is huge, it's growing. And look at verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So I don't know how you read this. When I read this, these guys crack me up. They, they kind of remind me of me. So though so you, you did a good thing and you're taking an account like, okay, I think, one, I think Peter or somebody has some fish and bread, but as I'm counting the crowd, like there's not enough for us. So let's pitch it to Jesus this way. Let's He's compassionate and caring more so than we are. So we're going to say, hey, you know, have you noticed Jesus' sun's coming down? We got over 10,000 people here. Let's send them out, out of care for them, so that we can eat the food that we do have. That, that's how I'm reading I don't know how you read it, but that's how I read it. And so they're honest and real. But look at verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And then they're like, oh no, here it goes again. Verse 17, they said, we have five loaves and these were most likely flat loaves of bread and two fish. And even if they're the biggest fish you've ever caught and the biggest loaves you could imagine, we got 12 grown men who probably one of them could do some damage on the five loaves and two fish. But he says, bring them to me. And you imagine like, we don't, We don't have the details. This is how I read the Bible, like James and John or or somebody's like, oh no, there it goes. We were waiting for them to at least turn their backs and start walking. We could start eating, but now here we are. Well, then what happens in verses 19 to 21 is incredible. And it's really incredible to Matthew's original recipients because they were primarily Jewish Christians. So what Jesus is about to do If you were a Jew who knew your Old Testament, especially the Exodus account, you know that God alone is the one who provides in the wilderness, miraculously providing bread and at one point providing uh, birds to to eat. Only God can do that. And so even how Jesus is going to instruct the crowd to sit down is very reminiscent of what happens in the Old Testament. And basically, Jesus is going to show his deity again. He already showed it by healing people. Now he's going to show it in a different way. I'm the one who provides in the wilderness. Just like you read in the Old Testament. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So what is happening here? is the food is miraculously being multiplied. So the the bread's being multiplied. The fish are being multiplied. And they keep pulling it out. Like to us, it might have looked like a magic trick. We gave two, and two more came. And he just keeps going. What he's doing there is showing, I am fully God. And I can do the impossible. And then it says in verse 20, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets, 12 disciples have 12 baskets, full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we have five loaves, two fish, impossible to feed a crowd that size. Jesus does the impossible. So he shows compassion to the hungry who came expectant and in faith To meet Jesus and see what he would do. But also, he he sat them down like a family. He had a family meal with thousands of people. And that's what it's like when you come to Jesus. You are as much family as his blood relatives. And he even says at one point, even more so. See, Jesus is inviting us to come with faith, with expectancy, with courage and with boldness. this meal was more than a meal. It was showing Jesus' identity. It was showing how He welcomes people in to his family. It was showing a unity that comes when you gather around Jesus. It was showing that Jesus is actually the good shepherd of Psalm 23 in the Old Testament. He provides in the wilderness. He is the true and perfect King and Shepherd. So over 10,000 people ate, and I love this verse, this word, and were satisfied. See, to come to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to, to put your faith in Jesus is to experience satisfaction that no one else Or no other thing can provide. Jesus' power and compassion call for a response. So the question this morning is how will you respond? If you're honest, who are you, you most like? Are you like Herod? Are you like Herodias? Are you like Herod's party friends? Are you like the courageous John the Baptist? Are you like the crowd? in faith and expect it. Are you like the 12 disciples that are in faith at times and conflicted at other times? Wherever you are, you confess that to the Lord and ask Him to give you courage, to give you faith, to give you boldness. Where do you lack boldness and courage? This week, as you enter a new week, If it's at work, tell a Christian you know. Say, pray for me. I want to be able to share the gospel this week. Maybe it's with your extended family. Maybe it's with your immediate family. Maybe it's with your college roommate or friends or classmates or professor. What would it look like this week to pray with faith and expectancy? To pray that God would work and move in your marriage? To pray that God, would work and move in your son or daughter who have turned away from Jesus. To work in your neighbor who is mean, cold-hearted. To work in our community all across and throughout Indiana County and beyond. Pray bold and expectant prayers to the Lord. See, Jesus is compassionate, And He is powerful. I want us all to stand. And I want to read two verses from the book of Jude. And this is our hope. And the band can come up. Jude says this, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Jesus is our hope. It's He who will help us. It's He who is filled with compassion and power for you. Let's pray to Him, and then we're going to sing a final song. Jesus, You are the keeper of Your people, and we look to You. We pray faith would rise in our hearts this morning. We pray that those who are still ensnared and enslaved to sinful desires and passions, whether it's the fear of man and people-pleasing or all kinds of immorality, pray you would bring forgiveness and freedom. Lord, we pray for those of us who know you, give us boldness and courage to speak of you often. And Lord, we pray our hearts would be filled with worship as we sing this song to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.